You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. I thought I'd just read uh, from Isaiah 66 verse 2 before we read. Just that reminder that the Lord our God says this, I will look favourably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. So let's hear God speak to us through his word. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, We'll never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors and governors, have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that, For 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that, as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict, Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days any person who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, As a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you, the king, And the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went together to the king and said to him, You know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. 
the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in an anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, Has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den, they, their children, and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation and language who lived on the whole earth, May your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. For he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, thanks, Ben, and uh, it's a pleasure uh, to be with you this afternoon, uh, to be with you again, though, of course, it's some years uh, since I was last here. Let's ask God now to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the living God and you do speak. And we thank you that the word you speak to us in our Lord Jesus is a word that gives us life and hope. Uh, we pray in your mercy that your good word would do its work in our lives this afternoon, that it would help us to trust Jesus for life and that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and instruction, we would be equipped to live lives worthy of him. And help me, we pray, to speak your word truthfully and clearly to the honour of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, there will be slides uh, coming up. Uh, if I get them out of sequence, uh, which, which may well happen, uh, uh, just give us a wave. Uh, and of course, I probably won't see the wave, so you might actually have to shout. So, so there you go. Uh, anyhow, uh, let's think about Daniel 6. Change is always unsettling, isn't it? Your company is taken over by another, a new boss starts, a new principal comes to the school, a new government comes to power. What will it be like? How will it affect you? Will it prosper you or disadvantage you? Change has come to the Babylon of Daniel. The old regime is gone and Darius the Mede, as we've heard, has been installed as king. And this really is a big change. One empire gone, another come. A change that can affect so much of everyday life. New people in positions of power, new structures to master, new rules to get used to. A change that might be good or ill or make no difference to the lives of God's people. A kind of change that can create anxiety and insecurity. But the kind of change that God's people have experienced repeatedly over the centuries as power has shifted from one group to another. Change, of course, we experience in a small way culturally as we feel a shift in the values and the worldviews of the society around us. In such times of change, how can we live securely? Where can we find our centre of gravity to give us stability? Where can we put our confidence in our position? Or perhaps our property and wealth to keep us safe? In our connections? Or maybe in God? How should we respond if the change looks threatening? If we see some working to exploit that change to our disadvantage and loss? Daniel 6 shows us Daniel living through a time of great change, change that's exploited to threaten his very life. And what we see in God's word is that faithfulness to the faithful God is always the safe place to be. And faithfulness to the faithful God will bring others to confess his greatness. And in seeing that, uh, we will also see how to witness ourselves to misguided power. Yay. Oh. Yeah, good. Uh, as the chapter starts, uh, we see Darius is shaking up the administration, the bureaucracy. He's actually trying to create an effective administration mainly for the purposes of revenue, for the collection of taxes. And so he's delegating the responsibility to 120 satraps, people who administer smaller areas under his rule. Now, there was uh, plenty of opportunity to cook the books in the collection of taxes in ancient times. There was no paper trail, no computer records, no pay-as-you-go possibility. People brought money, cash, to the collector. And the temptation was for a minor official to use the collection of taxes to enrich himself at the expense of both the taxpayer and the state to overcharge one and then keep some back of what was due to the king. And so these officials had to be watched. The state bureaucracy needed effective oversight. And so as we read here, the king appointed three administrators, including Daniel, to be a kind of official auditor 
to make sure that the king wouldn't be defrauded, the king wouldn't suffer loss. But now the problems start, uh, verse 3, because Daniel was very conscientious and able. And so it appears the king's going to make him a kind of auditor general. Now, if you're a government official wanting to use your post to enrich yourself and increase your own power in the administration, and that actually was the expected thing, that's why you entered uh, the royal administration, it was to enrich yourself, someone in whom there is, verse 4, no negligence and corruption, who's actually diligent to protect the king's interests, is a threat. Daniel became an active threat to the plans and ambitions, the careers and wealth of these ambitious government officials. And so he had to be discredited, his influence curtailed. But they could find no fault in him, either in his integrity, his work ethic or his ability. And so they conclude, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of God. Now note that Daniel's enemies weren't opposed to his faith in itself. As far as they were concerned, Daniel could believe whatever he liked about God. They were actually opposed to his life of faith, the behaviour his faith gave rise to, opposed because it interfered with their own plans and showed up their self-interest. Now, that's the kind of opposition that can arise in any workplace, where living as believers, doing what you do from the heart, as Paul says, is something done for the Lord and not for people, shows up the behaviour of our colleagues, whether that's their laziness or carelessness or pilfering or worse. In Daniel's faith, his commitment to God, seen in his obedience to his law, the officials now see an opportunity to advance themselves by getting rid of Daniel. Together they hatch a plan to use the power of the state to do their dirty work. And so they come to Darius together. Now, of course, that must have impressed Darius and uh, no doubt he was pleased by their unanimity, although it is a bit of an exaggeration when it says all, isn't it? Because Daniel is not involved. And they make a most flattering suggestion to their boss, to Darius. Establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Darius likes it, of course. It will enhance his glory, reinforce his power, make clear to everyone his central role in their lives, their need to depend on him The king's power will be seen as the source of all blessing and the king the only one to whom they should give their loyalty. And if they don't, of course, they'll suffer consequences. They'll be excluded from Darius' kingdom by being excluded from life via the lions. The Persian kings uh, already have a very high view of their power. The laws, uh, verse 8, that they create are irrevocable and cannot be changed. And that's, of course, saying that they never get it wrong, never need to change their mind, such is their wisdom and uh, their might. So this new decree will enforce the king's status and make clear that the gods have given him their power. It, in a sense, reinforces the legitimacy of his rule. 
Now, it's not quite the same as Nebuchadnezzar's decree back in chapter 3. There, Nebuchadnezzar had commanded all to do something, to worship his idol. Here, Darius is commanding people not to do something. They must not petition, make prayer to, seek help from anyone but the king. But it is just as dangerous to God's people. And it serves the other administrator's purpose well enough. And while it sounded good to Darius, as soon as it had had to be acted upon, he realised it was a foolish decree, one he did not want to carry out. As soon, it says in verse 14, as the king heard this, that it would ensnare Daniel, he was very displeased and he set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort. It was a foolish decree. Foolish, because it actually served the administrator's purpose, not Darius's. It was foolish because it hurt his own power by destroying a trusted and loyal servant. And that's actually part of the tragedy of what's happening. The king, the state, is actually well disposed to Daniel. There's no ill feeling towards him. But Darius's actions have now exposed Daniel to harm and to death. Now, at this point, we perhaps should pause to remember that actually we are threatened in this state by a foolish law. I don't know whether you've done much thinking about the change and suppression legislation. You may be aware of it, you may be not. Uh, in our congregation, we've talked about it a, a little, but it is a very different piece of legislation. It's not foolish in its intent in seeking to prohibit destructive and shameful coercive practices that have harmed young gay people in the past. Practices that have more to do with psychological interventions like aversion therapy that, at least in my experience, have actually never had any place in any church that I've known. But some aspects of it, where it goes beyond similar legislation in other states and jurisdictions, actually do have the potential for mischief. Only in Victoria, for example, are adults not free to choose for themselves whether they want to be involved in change and suppression practices. And even voluntary conversations between adults could be potentially breaking the law. Then there's the failure to specifically exclude conversations between parents and their children from the scope of this legislation. And this legislation, uh, and, and legislating that only one kind of response to gender dysphoria of young people, that there is only one kind of response, the affirmation approach that's acceptable, is, is actually very, very difficult because science may lead us to believe that that's perhaps not the best kind. So potentially these provisions could be very difficult. For example, the Act makes it illegal to run a support group designed to help people not act on their same-sex attraction where all present are there because they want to be. It would make a religious leader consistently telling a member of their faith to suppress and ignore their feelings of same-sex attraction or to live a chaste life out of loyalty to Jesus. It suggests that even praying with them, with their consent, that the Lord would strengthen them to resist acting on that desire is illegal. And that's all religious leaders, not just ministers. 
Bible study leaders, youth group leaders as well. Now, of course, we'll have to wait and see how the Victorian Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission implement the provisions of this Act. And as I've listened to uh, the government ministers and MPs speak, I don't think their intent is actually the harassment of Christians teaching Christian doctrine. The politicians I know are actually generally well disposed. So while it may have been, uh, but that may have been the intent of groups that have actually pushed through the legislation. But nevertheless, it is foolish legislation in making more difficult, difficult conversations between parents and children by having the prospect of state intervention hanging over them by enshrining what the British High Court and Bell versus Tavistock has called an experimental treatment as the only possible approach to gender dysphoria, where it is certain that in the coming years, knowledge about and responses to gender dysphoria will change, and by robbing adults who want it of honest private conversations and not taking into account that some people actually do change their lifestyle. But the real question is, this is because it's really just an example, how will we respond to a foolish law to the power of the state being co-opted by the ambitions of the few? That's just one example, and I'm sure in the years to come there'll be others. So how does Daniel respond to the power of the state being co-opted to uh, further the ambitions of the few? What does Daniel choose to do. Well, Daniel, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in, it upstairs, in its upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel knows of the decree's enactment, and he knows that the lions are real. So what does he do? Well, think of what he doesn't do. He doesn't make a fuss, doesn't make a show of his commitment to God. He goes into his house upstairs. He doesn't seek an audience with the king, doesn't call on his contacts to make him an exception. And he doesn't decide he will pause his devotion because, let's face it, it's only 30 days. You know, 30 days, but he doesn't say I'll keep a low profile until all this blows over. And he doesn't go into hiding. He keeps praying and giving thanks just as he had done before. A practice shaped by God's word, praying to Jerusalem in line with Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8, three times a day as we read in Psalm 55. He keeps praying and giving thanks just as he had done before. Now notice that. He gives thanks to the Lord even as his commitment to God becomes a source of danger to him. For the Lord was still God, the God who gave him life and health, who had made him one of his people and whose promises Daniel believed were sure. So Daniel doesn't change even though he knows it's a setup designed to get him out of the way. He doesn't change, for the Lord is still God. And if it's right to pray and give him thanks before, it was still right. No human decree changed that. No human decree changes who the Lord is, 
And the Lord gets to say how we should worship him, how we should respond to his rule and initiative in calling us into relationship with himself. And that should be our response to say this foolish law. You see, it's right to tell people that life, eternal life, is found in repentance and faith in Jesus. That Jesus is worth giving up your life to follow, as Jesus himself said, remember. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus thought he was worth everything. And it's right that part of believing Jesus for all of us is sexual self-control and that all sexual activity outside the marriage of a man and a woman is forbidden for Jesus' people and reckoned as sexual immorality. Now, if it is right to tell people this in public and individually now, that Jesus is worth everything, that Jesus' followers have to live sexually self-controlled life, that eternal life is found only in following Jesus, if it's right to tell them that, then it continues to be right to tell people that. Jesus is the one who gets to decide what's consistent with following him, not human governments. In fact, it's not only right to keep calling people to follow Jesus on his terms, for he is Lord, it would be loveless as well as faithless to stop. For life is found only in Jesus. Well, Daniel makes his choice and uh, the plotters spring their trap. They find Daniel, as they knew they would, praying in his room, petitioning and imploring God the very behaviour the king had forbidden. They obviously don't think Daniel will get help from his God. His prayers don't worry them. And off they go, scurrying to the king. And they lead the king into the trap they have set for him as well. Didn't you sign an edict, they said. He'll not be able to deny it, will he? And when he's affirmed that that is his decree... They say with glee, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, not Daniel, your trusted advisor and administrator, but Daniel, the Judean exile, has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. And the king sees his trouble immediately, that he's been trapped into inflicting harm on himself, and so he tries to rescue Daniel, made every effort until sundown to deliver him. But he is seen to be powerless. So verse 16, the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The one who had been flattered into presenting himself with power to grant everyone's requests cannot even save Daniel from himself, cannot even rescue himself from himself. Even the power of well-disposed rulers is limited. God's people can't put their trust in them for security. If Daniel's hope had been in Darius, he would have faced a crushing disappointment. 
But the king, confronted with his own weakness, his rule exposed through his own pride as frail and finite, points us to the source of real hope and real security. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. And he spends his night in fasting, fasting to express his grief and gain the attention of God. Darius cares, but actually his care is of no help. Daniel's in the lion's den and the den is sealed and so no one can come and secretly rescue Daniel or distract the lions. But Daniel was right to put his trust in God, to keep on living the life of real faith in the living God, even if it exposed him to hostility and death. Now, whether it's fear or hope that brings him to the lion's den after a restless night, we don't know. But Darius comes early and he calls out to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lives? And wonderfully, Daniel answers, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him and also before you, your majesty. Daniel is alive. And uh, as uh, Darius soon learns, verse 23... Whoops, I'm really well ahead. Verse 23... He's completely unscathed. And it wasn't, as verse 24 shows us, because the lions had somehow lost their appetite or were tame lions. God has delivered Daniel by sending his angels to shut the lion's mouth, vindicating his innocence before God and the king. And it is the Lord, the living God, who actually rescues, isn't it? Not Darius, not human power. And it's the Lord, the living God, whose judgment prevails, not Darius's flawed judgment. And it's the Lord's enemies, those who reckoned him of no account in their scheming, who were judged. Daniel was right, verse 23, to trust God, to make, to make God his refuge in the ebb and flow of power politics. Faithfulness to the faithful God is the safe place to be in all the changes of this life. Our trust is not to be in possessions or property, our power or influence, not even in friendly politicians. It's to be in the Lord, like Daniel. Daniel didn't try and manufacture or manipulate the outcome himself. Rather, he kept on entrusting himself to the one who judges justly by keeping on living as his person, keeping on worshipping him, giving the Lord the thanks that was his due, turning to the Lord for help. And as part of that, Daniel kept on dealing respectfully with the king. Did you notice that in verse 21? May the king live forever. Even on the other side of the lion's den, there was no outrage, no bitter recrimination, but respect and service. Trust in God, the Lord who rules over all things. Trust even when people are seeking to enlist the power of the state to do harm to the Lord's people is vindicated in Daniel. And in his trust and vindication, Daniel, of course, points us to the Lord Jesus. 
As in Daniel's case, Jesus' enemies manipulated the power of the state, the Roman state, to destroy him. And like Daniel, Jesus was seized at prayer in the garden. And Jesus was brought to trial by the state. And in that trial, as Peter says, he entrusted himself to the Lord, the true ruler and judge. But unlike Daniel, after his unjust condemnation, the Lord Jesus was killed. There was no last-minute rescue. But he was right, wasn't he, to trust the living God? God raised him from the dead. Raised him in the body in which he'd been killed, to be seen, to be touched, to be eaten with. The Lord rules, and faithfulness to the faithful and just God is the safe place to be. And because of the Lord Jesus' death, that's the safe place that you and I can be in too. Daniel was spared in the story because he was innocent. But we are not innocent, but guilty. We are sinners. Now, hopefully you can think of your own sin, perhaps. But of ourselves, we're much more like the ambitious and envious satraps, trying to work to our own advantage, pursue our self-interest, create space for our greed and corruption, and wanting always to do what we want to do. We deserve condemnation. Yet we can be spared because Jesus, as it says, bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he did that so that we could return to our God, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, so that forgiven, we can come home to the one who can always keep us and raise us from the dead, our good shepherd. We can be safe now with him because of his death for us. Safe eternally, whatever others do to us. And that's important. For not all who trust God get the kind of immediate vindication that uh, we see in Daniel 6. At the end of Hebrews 11, where uh, the author's been talking about, you know, in a sense, the heroes of faith, this is what he writes. What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. It's a sense, isn't it? A, a history of the triumph of faith. But actually, it's not describing all believers. The author goes on with these words. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Some 
like Daniel, were delivered. But not all. Many didn't receive vindication in this life. So were they right to keep trusting and obeying? Yes, because belonging to the risen Jesus, all who trust him will rise with him to eternal life. Listen as the Apostle Paul speaks of his trial. At my first offence, he said, No one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul's speaking literally, but he's actually also comparing his experience to Daniel. And he speaks with confidence of the Lord's continuing rescue. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his eternal kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. But notice, Paul says that knowing already that he will die. He will die unjustly in this trial. Remember earlier in that chapter, he's already written, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure is come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. You see, Paul is confident that the Lord will rescue him, vindicate him in life and in death. For the Lord Jesus lives and reigns. In Christ, the risen almighty Christ who has all authority, faithfulness to the faithful Saviour, to the faithful God, is always the safe place to be. But Daniel 6 doesn't just tell us that in all the changes in this life, it's right to look for our security to the faithful God and to him alone. It also tells us that faithfulness to the faithful God brings others to confess his greatness. You see, the climax of the chapter is actually not Daniel's rescue. It's actually Darius's confession in his decree. Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation and language who live on the whole earth, may prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. From being flattered into issuing a boastful and empty decree through Daniel's faithfulness, Daniel's faithfulness without rancour, even in suffering, Darius now issues a decree where he humbly confesses to the world the truth of Daniel's God. He is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. And he, unlike Darius, is the one who can rescue and deliver. And that's the right response, isn't it, to the faithful God's vindication 
of his faithful servant. It's the response God calls for from all of us in response to his vindication of his faithful servant, Jesus. Now, I don't know you. I don't know where you are. You might never have done that. You might never have acknowledged that the Lord rules, rules through his King Jesus, rules over you and will hold you accountable. You might never have acknowledged his power to rescue and save you from the death and judgment that we will all certainly face, save you through the death and rising of his son Jesus when you call out to him. But that's actually what the gospel record, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that, that's what the record of Jesus' life, his unjust killing and his resurrection is there for. It's to bring you to say, I'm not in charge, I cannot keep myself safe, I can't rescue myself from death, I can't rescue myself from myself. It's to bring you to say, you can't do that. But Jesus can. The living Lord Jesus can and will if you believe the gospel. So if you're not yet a believer, as you think about this world and where safety can be found in constant change and with a certain prospect of death, well, now's the time to acknowledge and call out to the saving God. There's nothing magical about that. The Lord Jesus lives and he hears. And he hears everyone who calls on him. Maybe you're not there yet, but at least you should find out more, shouldn't you? Why don't you speak to Adam or Ben or the Christian you know to read a gospel with you, to actually come to know Jesus. For faithfulness to the faithful God is the safe place to be. Even if they put you in the lion's den, even if they put you on a cross, even when they lay you in the grave. The Lord Jesus rescues and delivers and he gives and preserves life. And that's what all of us must remember when we live in a world where sometimes power is misguided, manipulated by the enemies of God and his people. For trusting God like Daniel, we can actually respond as we remember that. We can respond as Daniel does. Respond well in ways that honour God and bring others to honour him. So what do we see in conclusion in Daniel's response to misguided power? Well, firstly, don't we, we see that effective witness starts with integrity of life. Daniel couldn't be faulted in his service. He was conscientious, honest, not driven by self-interest, consistently respectful. Starts with integrity of life. And secondly, we see that Daniel had a publicly faithful lifestyle. He actually had a known habit of real relationship with God. He prayed. And we know from Daniel 9... You'll get to it. He meditated on his word. Daniel couldn't be embarrassed or threatened out of that practice, but was determined to honour the living God, to obey God rather than people. He had an openly faithful lifestyle. And thirdly, 
All of this was grounded in a real trust in God. Trust as he is not some small idol for personal comfort, but the living God who endures forever and whose kingdom will never be destroyed and whose dominion has no end, who acts in history to rescue and deliver. And so whatever happens in our lives, whatever changes we undergo, whatever happens, say, with that particular piece of legislation I've referenced and (coughs) who knows how it might be enforced, now is the time for all of us, if we're believers in Jesus, to practice a life like Daniel's, to turn away from sin so that our lives are exemplary and those who look at them can find no fault with us apart from our faith in Jesus. To nurture and be open about our relationship with the living God by practising the means he gives us to relate to him and being unembarrassed about it. Prayer, meditation on his word, meeting with his people. And yes, now's the time to grow in trust in our God by knowing our Saviour better. Knowing him better by knowing his word. And knowing the truth of his word because we live with him, trusting him every day. Live with him knowing his love and his might, knowing the power of his life in us, not just as ideas or abstractions, but the reality that sustains us. We don't know what will happen. We actually don't know the future at all, do we? But we do know the world will continue to be full of change. One regime will follow another. One group will come to power and another be forgotten. And always there'll be those who will seek to use the change as an opportunity to advantage themselves, to promote themselves, and to do that even at the cost of threatening the lives of God's people. So now, if you're a believer, every day is the day to live as those whose lives witness to the faithfulness of our God because safety, eternal safety, is found in being faithful to the faithful God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word and we pray that you would be merciful to us And continue to work in us, if we are believers in Jesus, by your mighty spirit. So that we grow in our knowledge of you. We grow in our knowledge of Jesus' love for us. And we are transformed to live faithful lives of integrity and open trust. And we pray, gracious Father, for those who do not yet believe in you. We pray that you would give them conviction that their safety is found only in the Lord Jesus, the one who trusted himself to you, who died for our sins and whom you raised from the dead and who lives forever with all authority. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.